all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am speaking with Nevin Raj, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Grata, which is a craft ventures backed, among many other great VCs backed, SaaS company focused on sourcing for uh, capital allocators. Nevin, how are you doing? David, I'm doing great. Excited to be on with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited too. So I talk about Grata and I'm a, I'm a recent customer. And when I talk about Grata with other capital people, they ask me if I'm actually like trying to sell it to them because that's how pumped I am about your product. Love to hear that. <laughs> like they're like are you wait like are you getting like paid for this i said i say absolutely not i mean it's i just love the product and from a guy that literally is working out of excel and linkedin navigator i don't get to use a lot of products i'm not like a SaaS company that has 30 like you know pieces of software within their stack to operate their business i'm just a dude with you know some models and email so being able to you know like appreciate a product that was meant for me is is pretty awesome yeah, we, I mean, I've been in your shoes and I've been there and, and been in Excel and LinkedIn and email all day and pretty much built the product for the vision that we wanted to solve the problems we saw in our day to day. I think that's common with a lot of startups, but especially at the nature of Grata and what we did in our jobs prior to Grata. And even what we did when we started the company was we actually sat down and tried to do the work that you're doing to really understand what it takes to source a deal. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about kind of the jump. Like, when did you decide to go from, were, were you in banking or were you in PE? And like, tell me about just going off and what was the pain point and what did you want to solve for? Yeah. Um, so I started off my career in management consulting. I worked at McKinsey for a few years and uh, stumbled into M&A through a couple of different projects. I got on my first diligence, got on some corporate buy side work, and then once you've done one project, you become the, the resident expert to start doing more and more. So I got pretty deep in M&A and then ended up in private equity after consulting at a firm called Riverside Partners and had seen both sides of the coin there and realized a couple of things. One is that it, it kind of sucks. It's pretty tough to go out and get data on private companies and find the right companies. And it's a very tedious process. It takes a lot of time a lot of effort and the market's getting more and more competitive. You, you've seen that too. There's a lot of capital out there. A lot of firms having conversations with founders and it's all about now, what's your edge in the deal? Do you find it first? Do you have an angle that makes you special and unique? Can you add value that no one else can add? And so I, if you look at just the data out there, there's $14 trillion of boomer capital or boomer run businesses that are going to turn over in the next 10 years. There's $4 trillion of dry powder. So you still have more demand out there 
or more call it more supply of companies than demand, which means they're in an efficient market. Companies will find a good home. So it's all about how do you actually find the right company for you? So I started thinking about this problem a lot many years ago and, and started Grata actually off as what we call the time Grata data. So we started a, a basically a services business and a, and a data business to help firms get better information on private companies, help them really unlock what was coming online into the, the digital world. And that was really the start of Grata where we got our hands dirty to really understand this world of what does it take to diligence a deal? What does it take to source a deal? Yeah. And, you know, from a capital allocator perspective, so I'm kind of an early venture, right? And, you know, uh, I think, you know, re- you know, venture has become a super relationship type sourcing, you know, um, kind of uh, motion. What I've found out and, you know, I was writing my LP, you know, you know, investment dinner kind of presentation. And one of the three things that I would say is my key cornerstone foundation that I learned this year is that um, relationship investing has gone by the way of the dodo if you want to find a good deal. <laughs> like, because everybody has something and they all want to mark up their own book and the incentive to finding anything that's super interesting that's priced correctly is is very difficult. And, and you have to get there by luck honestly, because there's not really a good opportunity and they're not really showing you the dirt within it. Right. So, um, being able to find the company is, is extremely important and be there first. Totally agree. Our view is that if something's coming to you, it's coming to you for a reason. Mm -hmm. And this is actually the standard view that's been happening and just take sales and marketing, just take your average SaaS company that has that's trying to generate customers and part of their business development is marketing brings them leads they advertise online they have a website they run ads they go to events they do a whole bunch of things to generate leads if you ask me as a SaaS business hey do you not have a sales team do you not reach out to companies i would say that's kind of crazy of course of course we do of course every b2b SaaS company is out there with bdrs with account executives reaching out having conversations with prospective customers and building relationships through a proactive outbound way. So the question is then why aren't capital allocators doing that too? Why aren't investors doing that? And I think that's the change we're seeing right now in the world. It's this realization that you need to be proactive. You need to have multiple channels. The days of doing deals that just come to you are pretty much, as you call the the dodo, are pretty much over. You need to think about this as an omni-channel strategy just how all of your portfolio, all your B2B portfolio companies do it too. Yeah. And like, why, you know, why is it that, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of like small companies that are unprofitable that are selling a growth story. Like there's not, there's no shortage of that. I was talking to, you know, a, a firm that I really respect, actually two firms that I really respect that are, you know, very value driven as value driven as you can be with, with growth companies. And I asked them, I said, how much, and they're, they're more series A players. And I said, like, how much of your, of your, of your deal flow actually comes from referrals? And they both told me a big fat zero, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I would, it floored me. Right. And I was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It's, I think you're seeing the other side of, the extreme where you then realize that, okay, referrals 
can actually mean I reached out to someone, to a company. I had a conversation. I got my friend to give me a good reference who knows them. I found multiple ways into the company, but a lot of it started with being proactive because right. I can tell you yeah. from my side, my side of the coin, and I, I kind of have this unique view where we have a product that investors and M&A dealmakers use, but we also get inbounds from investors. We have a lot of investors emailing us too and investment bankers. And we see the same thing where our our Series A with Kraft, they reached out to us a year and a half, actually a year, probably a year and a half before we actually did a deal with them. And we started talking and they built the relationship, but they found us and they established that relationship. And when it came time to raise our Series A, we said, hey, we know them for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's coming in at the last minute, it's harder to really get comfortable with someone you know for two weeks, three weeks. Correct, correct. And so, you know, you've obviously been in the mind of, you know, the sourcing persona, the person that's, you know, banging the phones, banging the LinkedIn messenger, um, you know, emails, like, what is like, like, what, what is that like? Like, what is that? I mean, I feel that, you know, everyone, you know, wants to be in this business, but they really don't understand the work that you need to get to. Like everyone wants to, what I call to get founder high right? They want to be with founders. They want to coach them. They want to give them advice. They want to sit on boards and they want to transact, but they don't see the 90% of the work that goes into that. So like from your experience, like tapping into probably the best sourcers in the world, like what, what gives them the edge, right? From like someone who's successful versus not successful. Yeah, that's a great question. It's the, the billion dollar question. What we see, and this is across our our user base, when we talk to them and understand who's most successful, first you have to understand what the funnel looks like. What does it actually take? How much work does it take to get a deal done? Typically, it takes a thousand looks to get one deal done. Hmm. And a lot of people don't even realize that. They're like, oh, I'll email 10 companies. We'll we'll do 10% of those deals. We'll get a deal done. And when you realize it takes 1,000, you say, wow, that is a lot. And why does it take 1,000 looks? What do I mean by that? The average response rates sit in the 6 to 10% range. So you're talking if you send out 1,000 messages, you're going to get, let's just be conservative, you're going to get 100 responses. Out of those responses, there's some distribution. Some founders say, yep, let's chat. This is exciting. Others will say, nope, not interested. And others will say, Let's chat, but I'm not in the market for capital right now. There's going to be some other time where this happens. So among that, the success rate, call it a third. So now you have 33 conversations where out of those 100 are actually meaningful, potentially actionable. That's 33 hours of your time or more. And then you have to figure out which ones do you like, which are actually good businesses that you like, who likes you. So then that yield comes down even further and it goes into, okay, that's your first meeting. What happens is a second meeting? And there's kind of like a half drop off. So maybe 15, get to a second meeting, maybe seven, get into, okay, let's seriously talk about valuation and let's do an initial IOI or an initial kind of bid. In this case, it's, these are proprietary deals so not a bid, but initial pass on what terms could look like. And then you end up getting to about three deals that truly make it into an LOI stage out of which there's a 33% conversion rate once you really start digging into accounting, legal, IP. So that's why it takes a thousand good 
messages and a hundred meetings to yield one deal. So that's a lot of work. And that's what people need to understand up front. What we've seen works is one, how do you take that thousand and how do you turn that into a hundred meetings instead of 10? Mm-hmm. And we've seen that the single strategy that works the best is being more thoughtful and informed with founders. So if you go into a founder meeting and you're asking the founder, tell me about your market. How does it work? Who are the players? How big is the market? How do you play? What does your product do? You're at a disadvantage because what's happening is the founder says, I'm educating them. I'm trying to learn from my next investor. I want to grow my business. That's for growth capital, for venture funding, for buyouts, a little different. Founders want to make sure that their business is going to get taken care of, that investors come in and really empathize with their employees and are going to carry on their legacy. You have to know up front. You have to do your homework. You have to know the founder. You have to know the business. You have to know the market. Those get a 10x higher response rate. So if you're talking or a higher deal rate, and that's the number one problem we see. So the, the firms who come in really understand a space and say, I'm going to understand, let's just say, financial services or investor tech software. I'm going to know this space inside out. And they reach out to us and we start having an educated conversation. In their initial email, they show knowledge of the space. Then we have an educated conversation about it. We're way more likely to do a deal with them. Mm-hmm. And we call that targeted campaigns, thematic campaigns, the days of I'm an investor, I have money, talk to me. Really hard to get founders to respond. You have to have you have to show some edge. And we're seeing that edge right now. It's coming from knowledge of, of a space and knowledge of a market. And it'll be I'd be curious if you talk to founders if you see the same thing as, as they open up conversations with you. Yeah, on the earlier stage, it's a little probably easier because everyone wants money and they want to keep their options open, right? Um, that being said, however, you know, you still, you know, the, the good stuff, you know, they're, they're not responding or um, they are, you know, too busy or they don't really want to, you know, to do it. So I, I do find knowledge of the space, like you have to be, um, you have to show, you have to show that like something genuinely interesting, right, to them. So, I mean, my trick <laughs> is I be, and this is, might be shocking to everybody, is I try to be as informal as possible, right? <laughs> you know, like, and, you know, even if it's like saying like, hey, you know, your competitor sucks for this reason. Just like this really like open-ended weird thing, like, nah, the blank sucks, you know, they just lost this customer. Just something that I know. And like that immediately gets their attention that I'm not like just this drip campaign. And, or like, you know, I'll be like, how are you gonna beat this guy? Right, and then they're going to go, <laughs> you know, because they're going to tell you how they're going to beat them. You, you can kind of get the dialogue going, and you know, I mean, generally speaking, you talk about most capital guys. They're you know blonde and have vests, and you know, like are kind of like cookie cutter, and you know, had this veneer of you know of you know not that much of 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 like you know stated professionalism and, and dark beady black shark eyes and you know if you show a little bit of like life and charisma and stuff like i think that that that's refreshing to founders so that's right you kind of have to, you have to demystify capital and private equity and it you're right it differs from early stage venture backed companies to middle market main street american businesses there is a difference in how founders interact with capital um but I, I love that strategy of just 
you're you're human. You're talking to another human. If you make that, if you humanize capital, it makes the conversation so much easier. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the deal, yeah. I mean, literally the deal that I am doing right now. I know um, something about the largest competitor in the space, and just me talking to them about that and how they're different and kind of what they're doing, and you know, it, it just it just opened it up, and I was literally her first call, right? Um, yeah. And that makes sense to me. Founders are intellectually curious. Everyone wants to learn. If you can come out of a conversation with a nugget or an insight, that's valuable to you. That also signals to how an investor is going to be after the deal gets done. You mm-hmm. want value out investors. And you can see there's an energy balance of if you're on a call and you're just getting grilled for an hour on your metrics, you think, oh, that's going to be the boardroom next year. Do I want mm-hmm. that? Do I want to have value add? Interesting. Right. Yeah. Like, And then... I mean, honestly, when you're on the call, the first or second or third call, you know, I mean, the person generally on the phone is trying to understand like what your revenue and what or what your EBITDA and what your growth is because they want to qualify you in or out of like, are you like a deal? And like that is very unattractive to founders. Right. So um, trying to, you know, get into a, a different talk track, I think, um, is, is much more helpful. Um, I, yeah, I think, you're, I think you're generally getting at the point of adding some value initially, whether that's in the first outreach, whether that's in the first conversation and creating more of a, a mutual balance is what really gets separates the good from the best. The other thing we've seen for how the best get ahead is they're very akin to the objections that they're going to see early on. And you mentioned talking about revenue or financials in the first conversation before you warm up a founder. The other one too is actually sometimes with competitors. Mentioning that you're invested in a competitor can get a founder to say, I don't wanna give you my secrets. Are you fishing for information? Right. So if you're doing a roll-up, it's better to say upfront, we are doing a roll-up. We are investing in businesses that look like our portfolio because this is part of our strategy. Mm-hmm. That then tells the founder, okay, they're not fishing for information, competitive insight until they actually want to do a real deal. And on the mm-hmm. flip side, maybe you talk to a competitor. You don't want, again, you don't want to think that you're giving information up to your peers. But if someone says, I know your space and I know players and adjacencies, you're more likely to engage than I know your direct competitors. I'm friends with their CEO. Then you think, oh, I, I don't want to have this conversation. So now, like, this is such a great conversation. And, you know, I, I feel like, okay, so I know what Grata does now, right? It helps you, it, it aggregates data and it sits on top of this incredible web scraping technology that you have to kind of be able to find like verticalized searchable terms within constructs of, you know, data that's structured and, you know, throughout that lives throughout the internet to find things. Um, like when you think about your roadmap, right, without giving away like secret sauce. I feel like you can go in two different directions. You can go, okay, so how do I find the company and then how do I get into the company, right? And like, how do I like reach into it? But I feel like there's a big opportunity and perhaps even a bigger, more disruptive opportunity if you do like the before the search, right? Like how do you get thematic? Right, how do you organize your thoughts into like finding what you want to invest in? Like, is that something that's kind of percolating in your head? Oh, 100%. We've thought a lot about that. And because what you're describing is there's an end-to-end process. And you need to know, people come to Grata knowing what they're looking for. 
Right. And we give you the tool, if you know what you're looking for, to find it more effectively. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in a way, Grata is kind of like Excel in that you can do a simple formula in Excel and you get an answer. You can do an array formula. You can write a macro. You get a lot more value. And that means you need to come in knowing the way you're going to structure your model, the inputs, what the assumptions are to yeah. get a really good model in Excel. We thought a lot about if someone just says, like, David, if you say, I like software businesses, we have so much data and information on software businesses. Can we point you in the right direction? Can we take deals you like, deals you didn't like, your portfolio, things about your background and say, here's where you should be looking. Here are ways to get you started. Here are some of the most attractive subsegments. Here's what's changing in those subsegments to then inspire where you actually go in and search. And we think of that in the, the kind of market research bucket, um, but there is a lot to, to be done there. And that's actually something we're actively thinking about on that side. And we are also thinking about the other side of the equation of once you find a company, what do you do with it? How do you get more ways to get in touch with companies, more ways to contact them, ways to manage your funnel more directly? Um, and it, that's all part. We have a fairly large engineering teams. So we have different people thinking about different parts of the problem. We have a whole search and discovery team thinking about that upfront research piece of how do you know where to search? And then we have a, a workflow team thinking about how do I actually make this process easier and engaging with the UI and how do we do more downstream? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's amazing because if going downstream, you kind of go into like the product probably looks and smells a lot like marketing automation, right? And like, how does, or it's account-based marketing and like, how do you yep. continually engage in, in a way that's automatic? But if we're to go along the theme of the best sourcers are the ones that are thoughtful, right? Like, how do you structure the thought for people that are literally programmed to just dial, right? And, and that's the, and the balance is you want to help everyone level up their game and be more thoughtful, but you still want to give the most thoughtful people an advantage and an edge so they can find what others are not finding. So you kind of move the market up and our view is more deals get done, more investors are successful. That just helps us as much as it helps our customers. But then it also continues to give those who are thinking one step ahead that slight advantage and that advantage in finding even better deals. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's it's so fascinating. You know, it's, it's, it's right because you just have different kind of personas, right? You have the people that literally are like, okay, give me the phone book. I'll, you know, make it happen. And like, you know, I was very successful in building a very large pipeline of shitty deals. You know what I mean? What, what I'm struggling with now where I need to level up myself is it used to be, you know, you would plant your flag in, you know, a place like Arizona where I'm from and the growth would find you because we would lead deals and, you know, lead with big checks. And, you know, like that's just the way it was. And now um, if I don't want to be in the herd and I don't want to just see, you know, stuff and, you know, just have a gazillion meetings of deal of, of companies that, you know, aren't great fits or have hair on them or, you know, dot, 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 I need to be less salesy and more analytical. Right. And for a person who's, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an analyst by trade. I, I, I don't know how to do structured thinking or management consulting and more entrepreneurial, but for a smaller shop or for a shop that doesn't have a large team, a way to structure that way of thinking or, or to inspire that those trends and or like to automatically pull like my biases, right? You know, to, like it would be just incredible. I mean, it's a lot of it goes down to, this is a 
massive platitude, but one man's trash is another man's treasure. Exactly. 100%. And and you you use the phrase hair and then there's many ways of saying it, but there's going to be something that you can get comfortable with. And that is something someone else cannot get comfortable with. And you know, your talents, you know, your background, you know, your skills. You have to basically say no deal is perfect. If it's perfect, then it's going to be imperfect because of the price. The price is going to be higher than what I want to pay. Yeah. So what factors am I comfortable with in a deal? And therefore I'm going to seek out those deals. Like I was talking to someone the other day who was looking at software businesses that sell to a distributed B2B, less sophisticated or less technologically sophisticated customer base. I was like, can I key that in as a search? And I said, you can't really key that in as a search, but let's start brainstorming. What types of customers are those? Oh, those are uh, convenience stores and thrift stores. And they started describing these uh, these types of, of retail businesses that are less tech enabled where they have an experience and, and they say it's really hard to sell into cac is really high um we have a really low acv but i know that business so i'm okay with that type of software company because i understand the end customer really well and that's gonna if someone doesn't understand the end market they're gonna look at churn and cac and they're gonna say that's too high for me to play yeah but you have an edge there right and it, 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 it's so true it's like every i mean investing is literally the most biased game on the planet and there's no way to get around that Exactly. You, you, you invest in things you can empathize with and, and products and services that you can understand. That's, it's not like Warren Buffett as it's saying, I only invest in things I understand. Yeah, right. Exactly. I guess the only way you don't do that is if you have a bunch of partners and you just have to support their investment decision, right? Because your partners, you know, and then you can be a little bit more divested in thought or uh, diversified in thought. So, so tell me a little bit about you know, going to market, you started, it sounds like more of a service business. And then, um, tell me about like, you know, what your first product was pivots that you made. My, when did you have signal on product market fit? When did you raise, et cetera? Yeah. So we, my co-founder, Andrew and I started working together in 2016. We both graduated from Harvard undergrad and we're the same year. Um, so we, we started working together. We initially, knew we wanted to solve private company information problems in the investor and M&A world. And we, our thesis was that all businesses will be digital in the next 10 years, meaning they will all have an online presence, a website, and therefore there's a new set of information that you can capture to really understand and find these businesses. And before us, the way to do it was to get business registrations, like Dun and Bradstreet and S and P and others take business filings, and there's pretty much a name and address, and that's all. That's all you have for the majority of businesses. Now with a website, you know the company, what it does, which customers it serves, how it's positioning, contact information. It's all there. It's just not structured in a way that investors can really utilize it. So we started building. a a broad-based web crawling technology. Both Andrew and I have a fascination with Google and we we nerd out about the internet way too much. We started really digging into the structure of the web. How do websites come online? How are they built? How do people phrase text on them? Started studying it for for years and really understanding what's the anatomy of the business internet. And we built a broad-based web crawler that we started deploying actually on due diligence. So a firm would come to us and say, hey, we are diligencing, let's say, the market for uh, convenience stores 
convenience store technology. How many convenience stores are out there in the U.S.? Where are they located? How big are they? How many can buy this software? Are they in suburbs or, or cities? A bunch of questions you'd ask in a diligence. And we're providing them with this web-based data. What we realized was that diligence is very episodic. It comes and goes. But the, the flow of, of requests we saw coming in that were constant were around sourcing. Hey, can you help me find companies to acquire? Can we just apply this technology somewhere else? And investors are very smart. Everyone is thinking about how they can get an advantage. What's the next thing that they can do? And when we saw that, we started asking our customers, why are you asking us about this? Why is this a priority? And we heard more about, hey, the market's getting more competitive. For us, we're always looking for deals. We want to find good deal flow. Um, and then we had a couple of customers approach us in, in the summer of 2019 saying, I don't really want to do a project. I just want to be able to do this all day. I want, to, I want something that I can sit on my computer and just type in a search and get back companies to source. Can you build that? Can you just take this technology and apply it there? And we said, right. that's what we're trying to do. But we've been running on, on the treadmill and growing. We grew to a couple million dollars in revenue at the time, which you know, was great. Was great for what we built up. We said, "Hey, let's like, let's scale this back. Let's go and really build out the user interface above this technology." So we 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 started building the UI, and that happened at the end of 2019. And then we hit 2020, and then we just started selling subscriptions. And we just said, "It doesn't matter how much we sell this for. We need people using our platform. We need user feedback. We need to get customers to do this every day." So I think we priced at something. It was like $2,000 a year, $5,000 a year, something like kind of comically low at the time for the value we were providing and just signed up the first 25, 30 customers and mm -hmm. said, hey, we're going to give you value. We want we want you to, to say, Grotto, return me a thousand X and just sign up the first customers and people got really excited and they started using and we saw the data and then we got more people coming to us actually inbound because we didn't have a sales team at the time. And then we realized something was there. Mm -hmm. And that's when we went out and raised capital. It also happened to be the start of the pandemic. It was like July of 2020, April through July. We're like, let's go raise capital. And that was a whole another crazy story that, that's for, for another day. Mm -hmm. But ended up raising our seed round on this premise of we had found fit in solving this problem of deal sourcing in a new way for M&A and specifically for private equity and private market investors. And then we've gone through a few different rounds of growth and building out our product, building out our customer segments, raised two more rounds after that. So now we're kind of $35 million later and we went from eight people to 80. So at least 10X the, the head count, which, which has been like a, a pretty amazing ride. Yeah, and your co-founders still are at the helm, so you're doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So tell me, um, growing and, and being able to do that, was it harder to you know, starting low and going high, like you hear so much, so much questions around pricing and it's such a hot topic with, with founders and, you know, your strategy was to go low and then eventually incrementally go high. Like, how did you think about pricing? And once you knew that you had signal and people were buying, how did you know where to think to price? Yeah. Pricing is a very challenging subject. I, I don't think there is there's some science around it, but I haven't seen anything really definitive. There's a, there's a lot of art. And the, I think the biggest misconception is people will say, oh, look at the ROI you provide and make sure your ROI positive and basically people are getting more value than what they're paying. And, and that, that's right on a fundamental basis. What's wrong about that is you need to look at alternative 
and really opportunity cost. Meaning Grot is going to find you the best companies in the least amount of time. And yeah, a deal pays for itself. That's right. A deal pays for itself. Sure. 10 times. Right. Yeah. But could you spend four months finding that deal on your own? Maybe, probably. Is that going to take up a lot of time? What's your probability of doing that deal if you spend four months finding it versus someone else finding it instantly in Grata? There are all these questions that, that come on, on your next best alternative. There's also competitive pricing. We looked at um, what do other ecosystem players charge? S&P Cap IQ, PitchBook, other financial facts sure. set, other financial um, data and workflow companies. So we kind of said, what's the opportunity cost? What are the competitive dynamics? What's the ROI? ROI has to be... 10x right and considering a 10x roi what, how do the other factors shake out what are others doing and so we, we had a target and we realized hey the market average in our space is 30 to thirty-five thousand dollars. and i'm giving you public information you can look at pitch books sure. 10k or 10q you can take their arr divided by their number of customers it's their average contract value is around thirty-four thousand dollars. and they've Same. held that i mean they've, they've done a pretty good job you know ha- maintaining margin integrity there yeah, and I mean, and they have a product that adds a lot of value, and, and they've established a, a kind of corner in the market in what they do well. And so that tells you that for our product, that is what it can and should be at some level of maturity. So we have this this guiding light to say we know where we could be, and we can be more than that too. That's just where the dynamics are in our space. So we kind of knew where we could be. We knew we were at two thousand dollars, five thousand dollars at the time. And then we, we kind of mapped out what do we need to be able to add that much value in the market? What do our customers get? And are they using Grata every day, every week, every month versus the way they use Bloomberg or FactSet or PitchBook or CapIQ? So it helped us kind of understand what's the trajectory from A to B. And then we've been building along that way ever since. That's amazing. That's so cool. I love... Uh... I love just everything that's that's going on with your company. It's really incredible. So what would you say, you know, arming, and I'm really, I'm asking this question for myself selfishly, but I'm going to try to frame it, <laughs> you know, like it's for the audience. But if you were to say like, okay, you have this amazing tool, right? And you're going to go in and, you know, you're going to, you know, be able to find companies quicker, faster, you know, um, in a way with higher velocity, the market's turning, things are like looking, they're going to be in your favor from an investor perspective and you have capital. Since, you know, we're still in the roadmap phase on the, I think the pre-search that we talked about, how would you think of explaining to a sourcer who is, you know, more like execution and less strategy oriented? to kind of like wrap their head around structuring a thought process around trying to find the ICP, right? And how to use Grata to do that? Like, is there like a management consulting framework on like market mapping? Like, how would you, like, what, 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 what archetype or reference would you use? So I think what you're getting at here is how, how do you take someone who's more execution focused and is, I want to bang the phones and set up my sequences to getting them to take a step back and say, what's the right way to approach my market? Is that what you're getting at? Correct. Yeah. And like, how do you like peel that? And like, is there like a framework in order to, in order to accomplish that? Yeah. My, my framework is, it comes back to what we talked about earlier on what is your personal competitive advantage, meaning your firm, you individually, your deal team. And 
most established firms have a portfolio. So I say, go back with your portfolio. Where do you have expertise? Do you have expertise in software businesses, fintech, payments? Do you have expertise in convenience stores and pharmacies? Where are you good at? Where, what markets do you understand mm -hmm. really well? And just start with that. And you can just look at, like I said, look, you can look at your portfolio, the three deals you worked on, the 10 deals you did, or even deals you diligenced that, you, that didn't happen, that you passed on. Because mm -hmm. when, you when you're in a diligence, you're spending 80, 100 hours a week getting really smart on a space. You know a thing or two about that space. Mm -hmm. So I, I go down that framework and say, take the deals that you care about, that you've done, that are good, and go, and if you can't find good stuff there, go all the way to the ones that you've diligenced. And just, yeah, and just compound that, right? Just compound the knowledge as a start, as opposed to starting from zero. Start there. Why pick something up that you have no idea about where the founder is going to have to educate you and you're going to have a 1% response rate on, on your sequence? Go start with a, a spot you know, write a very educated email, create a one pager, create some value, a market pack, take your diligence deck, trim it down. Be ready to share that with the founders, create an edge and go run a campaign. And we're very experiment oriented. So I say run two, three of these, see what your success rates are. Just track your metrics in a spreadsheet. How many messages did you send? How many responded? How many meetings did you get? How many live deals came out of it? That's That'll amazing. tell you how effective you are and how effective that strategy is. And you see what works. And if you're working, if it's working in a certain sub segment, go double down, spend double the time there, spend triple the time there. Awesome. What is, so what's, 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 what are we going to be excited about for Grata in 2023? You actually, we didn't even set this up, but you actually hit on those two points. Grata sits in the middle of a workflow. Yeah. We are going to, in 2023, we're going upstream and downstream in terms of how we're going to complete that workflow, helping users understand where should I even be searching, getting market research up front. So if you're a sourcer, you can come in and really refine where you should be looking. If you're someone who doesn't source and you're on diligence to get the fastest, most detailed snapshot of a market that you couldn't really get anywhere else. So we're focusing on that upstream and then downstream too. How do we take your process for finding deals and give you more support throughout that process to make that more streamlined? And I know most people have a CRM, but there's still a lot that lives in the day-to-day -day sourcing that doesn't sit in your CRM. So we we integrate with a lot of CRMs and we're working on bridging that gap between finding a company, building a list, and then what you do when you're in your CRM. How do you label companies? How do you manage a funnel? How do you prioritize which deals to reach out to at which time? We're thinking a lot about that to really build out this end-to-end -end platform. So that's what's coming for Grata. And then there's more around, you know, we think, as I said in the beginning of the call, we think business development is omni-channel. So it's not just sequences, it's not just emails, it's not just LinkedIn, it's many ways of getting in touch, it's tapping your network, it's how do you find the best bankers. So we're thinking about that too, how do we provide a more omni-channel experience? Amazing, amazing. And where are you guys located? We're in New York. Okay, nice, nice, awesome. Nevin, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazingly educational for me. This is probably one of the best, my favorite podcasts. We'll see what the listeners think, but definitely one of my favorites. But uh, Near and dear to you yeah. today. <laughs> yeah, a couple questions for you. What is your favorite book? Favorite book? <laughs> I, I really like, the one I read most recently was, 
it was founder of L2, Scott, it's called this, it's called algebra of happiness. The name is, is slipping my mind right now. Okay. Uh, What's it about? Scott Galloway. That's who it was. Scott Galloway, okay. algebra of happiness. Um, I actually read the book because I went to a conference that Scott spoke at. He's friends with one of our board members and his book was about, he, he applied these kind of meme like mathematical frameworks to daily life. And I just mm-hmm. told you about how you should optimize on your happiness, how you, like when you're building a company, you are so deep in building the business mm-hmm. that it's very easy to forget the other things that are important in life the friendships, relationships, other things can all get swept away while you're building a business. I thought the book took a really good job of taking a step back and saying, think about all these other factors. Think about who your life partner is going to be. Think about how you spend your time um, with a lot of cool, like, kind of funny equations along the way. And I think Scott's tone is really interesting. And he, he gave a talk about it, which inspired me to read the book a few years ago. That's amazing. I definitely need that. Like I use uh, Ray Dalio's principles like to solve like kind of business problems and like and, and like structure my way of thinking. And it sounds like it's kind of like that, but for non-business kind of you know um, scenarios. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a good one. Um, awesome. And then uh, best piece of business advice you've ever received from David Sachs. I'm just kidding. No, just from <laughs> best piece of business advice. Yeah, if, if, if it was from David Sachs, it would be about burn multiples and, and go to market efficiency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, best piece of business advice is hire people smarter than you. Oh, I like that. Hire, Peter, hire people smarter than you. Yeah. you. I think someone who thinks they're the smartest person in the room is probably wrong. And uh-huh. everyone's good at something. We talked about specialization, finding your edge. If you could take a step back, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at. I feel like I learn from the people around me every day and I'm just absorbing like a sponge and getting better at what I do because I have people around me who excel in different things. That's been, we, we grew up a very bottom up. I'm a first time entrepreneur and we, we hired a lot of our employees before we hired leadership. And I know other founders start with leadership and build top down. That's why for me, it was a very big change in at least my personal life and how we ran the business when we brought in our first layer of management and VPs who were really strong because we just learned from them every day. Yeah. And we didn't have that in the early days of Grotto. We, we, I mean, we have awesome, we hired awesome people in the early days, but it was all of us kind of working together and figuring it out as we go. And then we finally brought on people who knew what they were doing. You had very special skill sets that could, that could help us, Andrew and I, do things that we didn't know how to do ourselves. Yeah, exactly. It's like you go until things break, right? And then like the director level people like that are kind of founder-ish, like, you know, they, they just don't know how to scale the, the teams and then you just hire the VPs. And, you know, that's what's great about well-funded companies is that generally like you can hire for talent, but you need the founders to actually find that product market fit. Like you can't hire yeah. for that. Um, the, other, the other rule is not just smarter than you, but also nicer than you. Nice. It, uh, nice people around. Yeah, that's p- perfect. Yeah, that's just about everybody for me. Everyone's nicer than I am. But uh, nah. so who's got, who? like, who do you think, now not to say you're going to pick favorites, but who do you think's got like the best outbound sourcing motion in the venture private equity field? There, there's a, there are a handful. And a lot of it happens because of, brand and the programs they've built. But when you look at the venture kind of growth stage field, 
I would say that the kind of the top tier, Bessemer, TA, Summit, and then I put Insight in that group too. JMI is up there too. They are really, really good. Providence Equity, they're they are, or PSG. Yeah. They're really good at using their brand, creating a program where they have a lot of associates and analysts who are really sharp, who understand very specific niches, and they can get up to speed really fast. So they come in, they understand a space, they can they educate a founder, and then they bring in other senior partners at the firm once a deal is about to get live. Um, so I've seen them just mechanize the process and do a really good job. These are names people here in and around the industry because they've been doing it really well for a long time. There are a lot of up and coming players. A lot of people you'll see leave these firms because they're fairly large and start their own and they start doing it at a smaller scale. They just haven't built their brands up yet. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I've seen those guys work and, you know, they, they know the, the industry and, you know, very, I mean, they're like 80% there. And then like the nuance of what the founders know and, you know, how they think about it is, you know, I think kind of like what puts the icing on, on the deal. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Navin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been really incredibly um, entertaining and educating for me. Um, thank you. David, a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for everybody. Thank you so much. We drop an episode every Tuesday, so please subscribe on all your major platforms, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. If you like it, please like, send a friend. And Navin, if they wanted to learn more about Grata, how would they do that? I go to our website, grata.com, G-R-A-T-A.com. Request a demo, submit your information, and we will be in touch really shortly. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.